This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. The pigskin classic. So we're playing the pigskin classic. We're not yeah. going to talk about it. I thought we were going to talk about it, but instead we're playing. We're throwing the ball to you, Andrew. All right, strap on your. I got my pads on. I got my helmet. Uh, I've got my mouthpiece. What else do I need to play? The, the great game of American football. Do you have sweet gloves? I have sweet gloves. I have an endorsement deal from Adidas. It's okay. not who I wanted, but like you dance with the one that brung you, right? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> My name is Craig. Uh, wait. <laughs> Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And when we're not talking about pig skin, we're talking about tree skin we're talking about books god i just love i just i mean our our listeners know how much we love talking about football i That's love true. the game of american football <laughs> thank and you for clarifying to, that we meant american football let's right be the game of here. american football and then we were at a, a party to see the uh the pigskin classic earlier mm-hmm, this evening mm-hmm. and uh it was it was between a couple of teams a couple of real good ball clubs like some good hustle on both sides Yep. Uh, a lot of differences, a lot of weaknesses, but uh, I th- think overall, just really strong teams. And uh, at the end of the evening, one of them, one of them came away with the with the win, the big W. They got that as big they call it. W. They got, got that the w, w. And the other team, other team didn't get it. It's too bad. That's how it, that's how the cookie falls apart sometimes, huh? Mm-hmm. 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 Apparently, toes are really important in football. Wait, multiple, wait, expand on that. <laughs> multiple plays in the Pigskin Classic came down to whether or not a guy could get all, well, most of his 10 toes on the ground mm-hmm. before he fell outside the boundary marks. That's mm-hmm. what they're called, the boundary marks. The boundary marks in American football. Yeah, everybody knows what we're I talking about. I didn't know that everyone was so graceful in football. Like it's a big, you know, you think about the big hits and the brain damage and stuff, but really, it's it's a lot like ballet or uh, ice dancing. Yeah, rhythm gymnastics. Mm-hmm. It's about the little movements, the subtle touches. That's that extra one percent that's gonna put you over the top. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you're a three hundred pound dude who's just like slamming into other dudes, that's good. That's a good start. <laughs> you're ninety percent of the way there. Oh, you're real but good at that, slamming. Come over here and join my team, the Jammers. It's that, it's that fine motor control that's gonna get you the big W on Bowl Day. On Bowl Day, yes. Mm-hmm. Andrew, let's talk about books. Okay. What'd you read? I read. <laughs> get us over that goal line. <laughs> Put my toes inside the boundary mark. I'm on the line of scrimmage, and you're running, and I'm going to throw a book at you. And what oh, book is it that I'm throwing at you? You're, wow, you just threw Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. Mm-hmm. Is it a big book? Like, is it going to... It's a heft. It's a Does it have the heft book. To have the heft to make... Like, it's actually going to fly when I throw it. I th- Depending on the edition, yes, probably. Mm-hmm. It's a hardcover. 
Yeah, I if you yes, if you had the hardcover copy of Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, I imagine it would. If you needed a football in a pinch, mm-hmm. like if you were on the playground and you needed a football for your football match, an American football, an yeah. American football, an American pigskin football ball, um, <laughs> you could probably use a copy of Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. Okay, which was written in well over a couple of years, but it was published in 1952. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you knew that. Was Did it published you? in 1952? I thought it was. Yeah, it was published in 1952. It Why was don't I have 1953. Uh, that's when it won the National Book Award or the oh, NBA, okay. as I like to call it. It's weird. Swish! Yeah, the first sentence of the Wikipedia article says published in 1952, and then in the little info table it says publication date 1953. So, well, which is it, Wikipedia? More like Wikipedia, am I right? Why doesn't Why doesn't anybody edit the right answer into that page? If anybody can edit you, put the call out. Somebody fix Ellison's. I mean, page. I can probably fix it. I just want to fact check. That makes a good right radio. Uh, what can Can you tell me anything about Ralph Ellison? I can tell you some stuff mm-hmm. that I have uh, some stuff about him too. So let's okay, compare great. notes. Great. Let's compare our notes. Uh, let's, uh, let's both open up our playbooks and see how far down the field we can get. All right, well, I'll line up my guys, you line up your guys. So mm-hmm. he was born in 1913 in Oklahoma City. That's in Oklahoma, Andrew. Mm-hmm. And uh, his father died when he was three years old. So his mom, and I think he lost an older sibling when he was yes. young as well. Yeah, that's right. Um, so he moved to Gary, Indiana with his mom to live with their uncle but then his mom and uncle lost work, so they went back to Oklahoma City. And while he was in high school, like he did all sorts of stuff. He worked odd jobs, but he also fell into music, um, started playing the trumpet, got an appreciation for jazz, which I think would later influence his writing and, and some of the stuff that he was interested in. Uh, the next thing I have for Andrew is that then he went to the Tuskegee Institute yeah, he went in to Alabama. The Tuskegee Institute, which is cool. Um, he... He got in apparently because the orchestra needed a trumpet player. Oh, that's a good get. Uh, and he also hopped freight trains to get there, like hobo style, mm-hmm. uh, which inspired the some of the stuff in his first published story, Jaime's Bull, which is cool. Hmm. Um, I've got this from an interview about like because he did he did music for a long time, and and he's he's giving this interview to the uh, Paris Review. Oh, sure. And um, talking about how he didn't like give music up entirely, but he started to pick up writing. Uh, he says, I became interested in writing through incessant reading. In 1935, I discovered uh, T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, which moved and intrigued me, but defied my powers of analysis such as they were. And I wondered why I had never read anything of equal intensity and sensibility by an American Negro writer. Hmm. Okay. Did we mention that about Ralph Ellison? He's that- a black guy. He is a black guy. We had not mentioned that. Okay, it's just um, good to good to bring it up at this point because I think contextually it's going to be important. I think it's going to be pretty important. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then he would also go on to kind of take fondly to the writings of Dostoevsky and Thomas Hardy. I think he's quoted as saying he's been really interested in anti-heroes, uh, which we'll find in Invisible Man. And then I don't think he finished Tuskegee. He went to. New York. He went uh, settled down in Harlem. Yeah, that's um, in 1936. Sure, sure. Um, which is he met Langston Hughes there, and Hughes was um one of the, one of the leaders of the Harlem Renaissance. Um, and Hughes also introduced him to the black literary establishment in Harlem at that time, and then led him or like introduced him to people who were in the Communist Party. 
Yeah. Um, and Ellison, yeah, he so he published and edited for communist publications, but he was never quite as loud about his affiliation as as some others were. Um, but uh, after World War II, he sort of drifted away from the ideology because he he thought that it had drifted away from like the straight Marxist stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. And what I have here, and maybe, and you can tell me more about that when we get into the book. But that the his relationship to the Communist Party and sort of that drift away from it is what this book is sort of about. Is that right? Oh yeah, there's a whole <laughs> mess of people living in New York that are referred to as the Brotherhood with a capital B, and everyone says like Brother Tarp, Brother This, Brother That, uh, you know, as their names, um, Brother Jack. So like, yeah, they're just the communists, uh-huh. and it's never and Marx is never mentioned, and in, in you know the name the word communism is never mentioned, but a lot of this early biographical stuff went directly into invisible man um so he publishes that in 1952 i think at that point he's in his second marriage um yes because yeah he married uh rosa poindexter which is a great name wow. in uh, 1938 um she was a stage actress um and he had an affair uh, with with somebody else, obviously you can't have an affair to with the person you're married to, and that marriage was over by forty three, and then in forty six he married Fanny McConnell, who was and, his second wife, and they were together. She outlived him by like a decade or so. I think she right. helped him put together some of the manuscript for for Invisible Man. Yeah, like she, uh, so she was a photographer, and so she did that to support him when he was writing because he wasn't making a living from it at this point. And uh, she also helped him type up stuff that he had written sure. longhand. Great. Um, and it was when he got the, uh, like you said, the U.S. National Book Award for Fiction for Invisible Man in 53 that he really started to forge like literary connections and get um, accepted by that establishment. Yeah, he would do a lot of essay writing. He ended up, they moved to Rome for a couple of years. He came home and taught at a lot of colleges and universities throughout his life, including Bard Rutgers, Yale, NYU, Chicago. He would. He never published his second novel in his lifetime, Juneteenth. Um, yeah, I know that was published posthumously. Yeah, and he also had a, you know a couple essay collections, Shadow and Act, uh, going to the territory, and then there's another posthumous novel called Three Days Before the Shooting. But yeah, he. This is the only. This is his main jam. Yeah, like what he's mainly jam. known for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I have a couple like fun facts. I don't know ooh. if you have any other stuff. No, there's there's two other things about the book. We can probably hit them after the after the break. So yeah, hit me with some facts. I like my the funnest fact. The one that I like the most is that he really was into like audio equipment. Mm. Like he used to take apart radios and rebuild them, and like customize stereos. I feel like that's Which such... I just think that's like he's he so he's into music already. He's a yeah. writer and then also he likes to take stereos apart. Like that's a pretty cool <laughs> range of skills. Yeah. Well, that's a thing I think in the mid 20th century is some of that stuff becomes really new that if I and it's all analog too. So it's well, some of it's like a status symbol. Like I've seen, yeah, I've oh, seen sure. episodes of Mad Men where they're all standing around the big stereo in the suburban living room. I still have a vivid memory of the scene in The Wedding Singer 
when Drew Barrymore's doofy husband to be or whatever like brings home a CD player mm-hmm. and everyone's like ooh and play them compact discs yeah and it's sort of like how he's rich and sort of like god could you be squarer you're excited about technology what yeah like what are people so it used to be stereos is what you get if you were a yuppie d-bag and you <laughs> wanted to like show other people how rich and I don't know, like, well-researched okay. you were. Like, what is it now? I have an answer, but I don't want to offend friends of ours who possess these things. No, do it. I, it's smart home equipment, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually 100% right. I do have some smart light bulbs <laughs> in my house, though I'm not as far along in this illness as some other people. Like, I have a thermostat, and I just haven't put it in yet. Like, Because I don't, it's partly because I don't, like it's 40 degrees out and I don't trust that I'll be able to finish the project in a day. <laughs> and I just don't want to not be able to control the furnace for that long. Yeah, that's true. But if yes, if someone comes over and you are demoing how you can control your house from your phone. Just really pointedly, like yelling at Alexa. Yes, that's when you've gone too far. If you're doing it just for yourself and your family, I, like that's fine. Live, live your life. Like my thing, like I right now I'm sitting at my desk and I have a I have a preset where of the four overhead lights in my office, only the one over my desk is turned on while I'm at my desk. Andrew, I don't want to talk about this anymore. Can we take a break? I don't like smart equipment. It freaks me out. All right. Craig, if you're playing a game of pigskin football, American football, you're going to get hungry. You need to feed yourself so you can play the game good. I love to eat things when I get first downs. (laughs) Well, uh, Blue Apron is going to give you more first downs than (laughs) any other. (laughs) Listen, they don't say that for sure, but I am saying as as a Blue Apron customer you're gonna get all kinds of first downs you're gonna get tired of getting so many first downs okay what do they do though who are they uh they're the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country and they uh, want to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone um so what they do is every week they're gonna send you a box of food and everything like They've they've got a few different recipes that they send you and everything in the box is like wrapped up individually and you have exactly as many ingredients as you need. So you don't need to throw stuff out. And, um, and yeah, and, and the recipes have pictures of what everything's supposed to look like at every point in the process. And it's just like it, it, you get good food and you also learn how to cook, which is cool. And the portions are like pretty responsible as I recall. So you're not like, you don't have waste like sitting around. Yeah. You don't have a bunch of like leftover stuff to throw out. Um, The meals work out to be around like $10 per person per meal, which is pretty good. That is good. And uh, yeah, they can be delivered to 99% of the continental U.S. and 99.5% of food deserts. I do think, Andrew, we should mention some of the meals that folks can get this month. Oh, sure, I guess. We should talk about the food some more. Yeah, the food part. This is what's going to power you over that that green here's that green green field time to move the chains with some cashew <laughs> chicken stir fry with tango mandarins and jasmine rice uh time to go through the uprights with roasted pork with apple walnut and farro salad uh 
Get an extra point of crispy barramundi with quinoa and roasted carrot salad. Oh, you got sacked by some udon noodle soup with miso and soft-boiled eggs. That's Andrew, take over. I'm out of control. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, you can check out this week's menu and get your first three meals for free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash overdue. Uh, you will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash overdue. Blue Apron, a better way to cook and also a good way to to fuel your body for football. A good way, indeed. Mm-hmm. And you know what my favorite part of football is? <laughs> the halftime show. College. Oh, yeah. Like college football. Like college football. But if you wanted college without the football, you could go to Penn State World <laughs> Campus. <laughs> It's an online school where you can get your Penn State degree from anywhere in the world. Uh, they've got like 125 graduate and undergraduate degrees and certificate programs, and they're in. They have the most top 10 ranked programs uh, in U.S. News and World Reports 2017 best online program rankings. Uh, if you are like a football player and you want to study at night, or you're like a busy working footballman, you can do that at Penn State World Campus because it's flexible. It's convenient. Uh, if you want to have something to do, Andrew, after you're done playing, what are your plans after you're done playing football? Gonna go to Disney World. Well, after you're <laughs> after you've spent all your money on Disney World, I hope you have a business plan. Mm-hmm. And the way that you're going to get one of those is if you uh, earn a new degree at Penn State World Campus in your spare time. Okay. Um, so, what is their situation vis-a-vis admissions counselors and coaches? To help me decide if Penn State World Campus is the best fit for me. They provide them, which is just <laughs> like just like the coaches on your football team, like your offensive line coach and all mm-hmm. the, you're used to coaches if you're a footballman. Yeah. So yeah. And these are just like them. think of these as academic coaches who have your future interests yeah, in at heart. Score, in their heart and at their heart. Score an academic touchdown. Visit the website worldcampus.psu.edu for to find out more. That's worldcampus.psu.edu Penn State World Campus a world of possibilities online also there's not really football it's just online Craig are you ready for some football I'm actually yeah I'm really ready to talk about this book instead can we stop talking about football Mm, that's up to that's not up to us I think that's up to (laughs) up to the universe so this book is uh pretty, it's off to a really good stuff. It's pretty good. Okay. And uh we've talked a little bit about some of the writers that Ellison is drawing on. He was really moved by Eliot. Uh as I mentioned, he was into Dostoevsky, particularly uh Notes from the Underground, which has like an unnamed protagonist that is kind of detached from the world around him. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's our, like, that's how this thing is set up. Um, do you want to drag some reviewers before or after we get into the novel itself? Can we do like one of each? Like Ooh. which would be better to get into before? Let's do it before. Let's just drag Harold, Bro- Harold Bloom again. Cause we okay. like dragging Harold Bloom. Let's do it. So, was that white old so and so have to say about this book? <laughs> so he, ironically, and I feel like we've mentioned this quote before 
because we've covered the other two books in question. But yeah, so last time we we dragged him, we were doing it because he didn't think women belonged in the canon, right? Mm-hmm. And now it's that he doesn't think a black guy be- belongs in the canon. Yeah, he was asked by the Paris Review about different authors, and he was, you know, kind of upset about a lot of the time spent finding authors of color to add to the canon, it seemed. And someone asked him about Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. And he's like, yeah, but you like that book. And he goes, oh, but that is a very, very rare exception. What else is there like Invisible Man? Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Are Watching God has a kind of superior intensity and firm control. It's a very fine book indeed. It surprised me and delighted me when I first read it and has sustained several rereadings since. But that and Invisible Man are the only full-scale works of fiction I have read by American blacks in this century that have survival possibilities at all. Alice Walker is an extremely inadequate writer, and I think that is giving her the best of it. A book like The Color Purple is of no aesthetic interest or value whatsoever, yet it is exalted and taught in the academies. It clearly is a time in which social and cultural guilt has taken over. Harold Bloom, just miss me with all of this. I really just like, I really hope that that these guys can can get a win, you know? I think like in in football... (laughs) In politics, like in all the avenues of life, I really hope they can just like they can find a comfortable place to be. Just old white dudes. Mm-hmm. They've really been missing out. Like they really. Oh, I mean, can we can we try and? So obviously, the only reason we brought this up was to to maybe point and and giggle a little bit. But yeah. like, is there something behind this? Sure, impulse okay. that he has to like to insist that the canon is what the canon is and that we shouldn't be like quote unquote forcing other stuff into it for diversity's sake or what? So I think it might be related or you can draw a line between something like this on a, like a, yo, why would you even say that way? And something that Ellison said about invisible man himself is that he didn't want to write what was just a protest novel. He didn't want to write what he thought was just, hey, blacks aren't being treated well. Read this story about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that gets us to this, like, ironic, detached narrator character who who ends up dissatisfied with all forms of advancement and... Uh, activism and you know ways to get ahead and ways to work within and against the system and I, I wonder if Bloom is like if it's just about race then why which right. is like a frust- it's like a frustrating he needs, he needs it to have those literary trappings yeah and, and whatever I, it is and sure. that, that kind of dovetails a little bit so we also had this review um, from the New York Times and it's dated in 1952, so this is like the original review that they did. And it was by Orville Prescott, who won that might be the widest name I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> and two, he was a New York Times book reviewer for like 24 years or something. Oh, like I didn't that. realize so that. He, okay. he was at this for a minute. Um, and he <laughs> says uh, parts of the 
parts of The Invisible Man consist of long and impassioned, sometimes hysterical reveries, which are frequently highly obscure. Other parts still seem grotesquely exaggerated or repetitious, and these strange interludes are overwritten in an ultra-pretentious, needlessly fancy way. Spasms are of torrential rhetoric. They obscure the point of some of Mr. Ellison's symbolic incidents and check temporarily the swift course of his story. So that's the most negative part of what is mostly a, a positive, if a little bit problematic, review of the book and it sounds like what bloom is valuing like are those literary like quote-unquote pretentious trappings yeah where where another reviewer might see them as taking away from the like wider social points that he's trying to make you know sure the book does have two main modes and we can kind of dive into what actually happens in the book through this discussion here is there's this it's not magical realism, but it's it's heavily laden with symbolism. Um, and then that kind of symbolism will bleed into the rhetoric. So because you are inside this one character's mind the whole time, he can kind of riff in a way, something like on the road riffs or even other, plenty of other authors we've read on this show, you know, think about like Virginia Woolf, um, just stuff that is not just like, and here's what happened next, right? Um, because you're in this guy's head and because his he's, when you meet him on, on page one, he has experienced all of the monstrosities and actions that are going to happen in the book. So he's broken down, right? And it's reflected, but he's also a skilled orator. So like his, you get a mix of like his poetic voice and also you'll just dive into like action narrative, which I think is what Orville wants more of. Okay. He just wants a series of events that tell him something. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think he feels like the, some of the, what I find actually really interesting parts of the book um, to distract from that, as you said. So yeah, yeah. The he says, Mr. Ellison has a grand flair for gaudy melodrama, for savage comedy, for emphatic characterization. He's not interested in literal, realistic truth, but in an emotional, atmospheric truth with which he drives home with violence. Writing about grotesquely violent situations with gruesome power, he's given Invisible Man the frenzied tension of a nightmare. So it sounds more like yeah, it, it, Prescott wants that more immediate stuff, and that's yeah. not always what Ellison is doing. Be, yeah. yeah. So we meet this guy who is living in some sort of basement hole or something in Same. New York City. Oh. <laughs> okay, sorry. Okay. Yeah, it's fine. Uh, and he tells you, like, first sentence, I am an invisible man. Okay, what does that mean? Uh, he says he's not like a ghost or anything. He doesn't have superpowers. Um, the in- and I'm going to quote him here. The invisibility to which I refer occurs because of a peculiar disposition of the eyes of those with whom I come in contact. So it's that uh, other people can't see him. Or it's not that they can't, it's that they refuse to. They decide okay. not to. Mm-hmm. Um, he references a scene where like, he scuffles with a man on the street and leaves the incident knowing that the guy is basically going to think that he was mugged by a ghost because he's just not a person to the rest of the world. Sure. Um, and you're, you get acquainted with his symbolism really early uh, he talks about how this little hole that he lives in is filled with 1,369 bare light bulbs. Um, he says, because he needs the light, the light is truth. Um, and without light, I am not only invisible, but formless as well. And to be unaware of one's form is to live a death 
I myself, after existing some 20 years, did not become alive until I discovered my invisibility. So, like, not literal stuff has yet to happen, right? We're kind of just humming along in this guy's brain. And he decides to take us all the way back to the beginning uh, when he was a young boy in the South and, like, how he got to this realization of his invisibility. Okay. Are we are we meant to take any of this as like biographical of Ellison at all? Or like is that there for you to read it read into if you want to, or does it matter? It is not presented as such, though even the cursory research that you and I did for this podcast, like, yo, it's what he went through. <laughs> like yeah, there are sure. there's a lot of thinly veiled references to things and it sounds like he was looking for a way to convey the emotional depth of his experience through some of this heightened language. Okay. Um, so one of the like tent poles of his early life, this character, I'm going to try to remember to call him either the narrator or the invisible man. But if you get like confused, just let me know. Cause he doesn't have a name in the entire okay. book. Sure. Um, Should we invent a name for him? Probably, probably not. not unless okay. we, <laughs> unless we want to call him like IA or I don't know. Like sometimes you dude. just sometimes you have to say a thing to realize how dumb it is. <laughs> our man, our dude, uh our man. Our man. Uh he re- his grandfather dies when he's young and his grandfather uh was a slave, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um because this is taking place after World War One, not quite at World War Two, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's worth worth noting at this point. I think that Ellison, um, he so he was draft one A, but he never actually got drafted served, to fight yeah. in World War Two. He did enlist in the Merchant Marine Service toward the end of the war, but he didn't like his writing. Unlike a lot of other of like like primarily white authors, I guess we've we've done from this period his his like worldview was not shaped significantly by like serving in the war. No, not at all. It's it's more concerned with what was happening here in America while that was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of the, the Northern versions of racism that were not as explicit as Jim Crow. Sure. So his, when his grandfather dies uh, on his deathbed, he tells our narrator to keep up the good fight, to overcome them with yeses, undermine them with grins, agree them to death and destruction. And our dude doesn't really know what that means, uh, but he kind of feels it's kind of cursed him to be extra aware of what he is and is not doing within a system controlled by whites. Um, He's not quite sure what, like, what does any of that mean? What is he supposed to do other than just try to survive? Mm Mm-hmm. So he's in school, and this first like big vignette, the book is really unfolds in a really ser- like a series of really vivid vignettes that are you know connected throughout this guy's life. Um, and there's this really big scene where he is supposed to give this speech for this like cadre of rich white dudes, and he's in like high school. And when he gets there, they tell him that first there's going to be a battle royale. And I think this section of the book was actually published earlier in a magazine before the novel hit print. Um, I could totally see why. The Battle Royale is this giant blindfolded boxing match. And so there's like a dozen young black men that just get put in a ring. 
blindfolded and are forced to fight each other. That sounds cool. Not really. <laughs> uh, and it doesn't go good for anyone. Um, and then they like take the blindfolds off and pour a bunch of like money out on this carpet and like tell him to go get it. Ugh. And then the carpet is electrified. And what? After, yeah, it's messed. Like it's this messed is like, up. It's like bum fights mixed with the game you play when you're five and the floor is lava. Yeah, mixed with just good old fashioned southern racism. Right, like a little little dash of that little, little pinch. Yeah, and after all of that, they let him do his speech. Mm-hmm. Like after he he's bleeding, he's he's drenched in sweat, and while he's trying to survive this experience. His teenage brain is like thinking, like, am I? But wait, like, do I still do the speech later? Like, it's kind of heartbreaking in his like, where does the system still like hold in this mm-hmm. savagery? Right. Right. Uh, they give him for all this trouble, I guess. They give him like this fancy knapsack that has a piece of paper that says it's a scholarship to the state Negro College, um, which is like an analog for the Tuskegee Institute. Mm-hmm. Um. So okay, that happens to him. He survives. He endures, and we are we jump ahead in time. He's at the college, and the first big vignette in this section is that he is giving a trustee a ride um, around the area. Who's this white man? And he. This is a thing that I don't. I don't know that I have a direct connection to, but the minute I read it, I was like, "Oh God, this is painfully true." This white guy, Mister Norton is rich and has given a lot of money to this institute and he tells our man that like his destiny is woven into him like any everyone who benefits from this college like Mr. Norton feels responsible for and a part of which like that in a normal like trustee to college or trustee to institute relationship feels fine. Mm -hmm. But against the backdrop of Jim Crow South, like you can see it for the there's a, there's an, like he takes on just like a little bit of responsibility for everybody. In addition to all the normal pressures of running that kind of institution. Well, and and he's not running it. He's just giving money to it. So like he's taking credit for the educational advancement of uh these black men living in the south but it's like whether or not they lift up other black people he's like kind of taking credit for and it's it's not presented as super cool um and of course while he is in our dude's care he has like two significantly messed up run-ins with other people from the area um one is this like guy who maybe accidentally probably not had sex with his daughter and then like well you can see how that would accidentally happen yeah it's it's like a dream sequence happened to him and he got Mm confused it's a bad story uh it's like a bad scene for everyone and he's a black man living in these former slave quarters away from campus and it like freaks mr norton out so he's in like a state of catatonia and then our guy has to like take him to this bar to try and get him some whiskey to like wake him up and all of these like mentally ill World War 1 vets like f- almost have a riot when they see him come in um 
And all of this to say that it leads to our dude getting ejected from the college. <laughs> okay. Um, he has this really messed up run in with the with like the dean or like the president of the college who is a black man who is not feeling responsible for the individual boys or, or men in his charge he just wants to maintain power over the college mm-hmm. uh and so right you're getting these like little moments of not little moments but these moments of disillusion for our main character who is like where do i fit in the system like how can i not like change everything he's not you know he's not setting out to change the world but he is trying to just like live a life as a guy Mm -hmm. as a black Mm -hmm. man in a white man's world and he's thought he knew what avenues were available to him including the school and they're being closed off for reasons he doesn't quite understand Mm -hmm. um so this the president of the college sends him to new york with seven this is like uh, this is a really messed up thing. He sends him with seven letters to like connections of his and like sealed envelopes. And it's like, go to these people's offices, give them this letter and see if they'll help you. But don't read the letters. Well, that's instantly kind of scammy sounding. Yeah. Like, like, Hey, write me this letter of recommendation, but don't. Okay. I'll do it, but you can't see it first. Yeah. And is it good? Is it bad? That'll be a fun game for you to figure (sighs) out. And it's definitely bad. Um, it basically says, I can't allow this student. He's sent with this idea that maybe after a year he can come back to college and all the letters say, like, no, this this kid's never coming back. He messed up. Um, I'm writing this out of duty to the institution. Do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. Um, so he gets stranded in New York City. He ends up in a halfway house. Uh, he ends up working at this paint factory where you get a little bit of union politics. I don't I don't have like a personal connection to union politics outside of like the actors union and stagehands union. Yeah, I don't have one either. Like I um so I I did work at that uh that snack factory. Oh, we do talk about the snack factory in college sometimes. where I did like the length of a summer like temps employment was dictated by the number of days you could work there and not be in the union so sure we could work there for 89 days <laughs> um but yeah my dad was never really a union guy didn't really have a lot of family members who were in unions at all and certainly not any of them who were like active politically in the way that we often are talking about when we talk yeah. about unions and I know there's a history of it, particularly along racial lines here in Philadelphia, and it, it's not a thing that I'm as educated about as I should be. Um, but the, our dude in this book, he's like, oh, great. Here's this paint factory that is willing to hire me, a, a college-educated black man. Cool. Mm-hmm. He gets there, and, he, and of course, he runs into the union guys who are like, um, I don't know about this, because most of them are not college-educated white guys. Stop me if you've heard this one before. Okay. Okay, great. You're not going to stop me. (laughs) Uh, So. I can't just keep stopping you every time I hear that story again. I know. I know. (laughs) Stop Um, asking me. (laughs) So he ends up, you know, he does some of the work for a little while. He runs a a foul of the foreman and uh, he gets set up. How many men? Stop it. Stop. That's not a good joke. (laughs) That's never been a good joke. Oh, jeez. 
He gets sent to work. He runs in, afoul like, of the foreman. He gets sent to work in the like, boiler room with this guy, Lucius Brockway, who's this paranoid, like older white guy who thinks he's there to steal his job. And he tricks him into like making a pressure valve like explode. Uh, and this knocks our dude out of that line of work. Um, he spends a couple disorienting chapters, like in a, some sort of hospital facility, like receiving shock treatment, which is like weird. I don't really know what was going on there. Um, and then you like, you don't know what the function in the story (sighs) of those sections is, or you just didn't get it. Or I think there's a little bit where I didn't get it because he is so disoriented that it's purposefully like voices are drifting in and out. Right. And then it is just like they're. I don't quite know why they gave him shock treatment and it, it is meant to be upsetting, I suppose, mm-hmm. you know, right? And it is, but I'm not quite sure what was wrong with him in that section. I guess that the literal, like, what happened to him, I was confused about. Yeah. Um, so then the meat of the book kicks off from there that in his relationship with the Dufer Communist Party in this book, which is called The Brotherhood. So he meets up with them... Because after he recovers from this uh, event at the paint place and he finds like a halfway house to go live in, he sees this older couple getting evicted, older black couple getting evicted. And this crowd is forming and they're almost about to attack a policeman who's enforcing the eviction. Mm -hmm. And he breaks in and like spontaneously erupts into oration basically saying like we are like law-abiding people like we're not going to kill this cop and then over the course of a couple minutes like twists the phrase and meaning of like law-abiding into like yes we are law-abiding people but what is it for these 80 year old people to just have a bunch of garbage in their apartment like clearly their life was meaningless what has happened to them also, we need to get this garbage off the street because we're law-abiding people, so let's take it into the building, back in, so they're not evicted anymore. And it becomes this like eviction protest that's more, I guess, class-oriented than race-oriented. Mm-hmm. And so one of the communists or one of the members of the Brotherhood, Brother Jack, like sees this happen and recruits him to be this orator for the Harlem area where they don't have someone. Yeah, sounds like anybody who can do that kind of... Uh verbal dancing would be yeah. good to have in your corner. Yeah. And so the the rest of the book is really devoted to um his journey with the brotherhood which from the get-go one of the guys at one point asks him why do you always think about the why do we have to hear about everything in terms of race? Mm-hmm. So like the communist party, <laughs> yeah, right? And they just recruited a black guy to help them have a presence in Harlem and it's really grassroots. It's like this eviction thing becomes like a political issue for people in the area. And it allows the brotherhood to actually start talking to local officials about how to help people. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But our dude is so good at speaking and so good at relating to people that, and particularly black people living in Harlem that he starts to get a name for himself which of course doesn't jive in the structure of a of a movement and a party that's all about the group right, and yeah. all about the brotherhood. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're kind of scared of his gifts of oration. Um, he has this like revelatory moment where 
uh, he has this big giant speech and he's like whipping this crowd up into a frenzy. He doesn't even know what he's talking about. He like he didn't have a prepared statement. He just starts going. Uh, and he ends with, Sisters, brothers, we are the true patriots. The citizens of tomorrow's world will be dispossessed no more. And he's like, okay, great. And everyone freaks out. And the party's like, mm, I don't know about all that emotion. I don't know what to do with it. <laughs> and they're coming at it from this like political science Marxist mind that says, like, we need to appeal to their to you know the people's logical instincts um and like convince them that this is a better way yeah i mean it just like and i'm not saying that that is wrong but i am saying it is counter to the way that politics has worked for the entirety of human existence well and it's it's also looking it tries to look at it explicitly at an economic level right stop me if you've heard this one before Mm -hmm. these it's ignoring any sort of, you know, racially charged obstacles or racially driven obstacles in the North to these people getting, you know, better jobs, to the residents of Harlem having better opportunities um, and just saying, like, you, we, we all need to get more money. Like, we all need to be working. Um, and meanwhile, our guys like, I don't think that that's how it works. Mm-hmm. Like, and they're and the folks in Harlem are relating to me. Because I am part of their community, like some of them come up from the South, some of them are descendants from folks who came from the South, like I get it, and I can talk to them and the, and the party doesn't know what how to channel any of that energy. Mm-hmm. The counterpoint to our dude, the counterpoint to the folks in the Brotherhood is this guy named Roz the Exhorter, uh, who later becomes <laughs> named Roz the Destroyer. And both is, good names. Both, both names great. I would be fine with. Both are amazing names. And uh, he is a West Indian black nationalist. And he's like a militant black nationalist in Harlem who is the kind of violent revolution counterpoint to folks like our guy and uh, an ally of his, Todd Clifton, who's a youth leader, who are black men in Harlem working with this white-run communist party to try and make things better. And Ross is like, he wants to just kill everyone. Like, he just wants to, like, he will work with other non-white people. But other than that, it is a militant movement. Um, and our dude doesn't really know what to do with that. Like, he doesn't, okay. agree. He doesn't agree with it, certainly. Um, he thinks it's dangerous. And he also thinks that the folks who are also threatened by the communists would just as soon have the nationalists also fight the communists and just like keep everything away. Like keep, keep the status quo in line by playing these two groups of people off each other. Mm -hmm. Um, And that tension drives most of the book. There's a, there's a, they don't know what to do with him. As I said before, because he's becoming bigger than just another operative of the communist party. Mm -hmm. So they take him out of Harlem to try and kind of neutralize his influence. And while he's gone, uh, the communist parties or the brotherhoods influence just like straight up dies in Harlem. Like it just withers on the vine. Mm -hmm. And that leads to Todd Clifton disappearing. um, And then later uh, one of the main characters is shot in a police shooting and there's this really moving 
chapter where his funeral becomes this giant, excuse me, giant march through Harlem. And I, it was way too similar to things that we've seen in the last several years. Mm-hmm. Um, the situation being that like there's a guy selling something on the street, he gets into an altercation and is told to stop. And then while he's leaving with this officer, the office, like they have, you know, a back and forth and then the officer just shoots him right there. And it's a white officer and it's a black guy. And the oration that our dude gives at this funeral, he said, you know, he doesn't even want to speak. And he says, I've told you to go home, but you keep standing there. Don't you know it's hot out here in the sun? So what if you wait for what little I can tell you? Can I say in 20 minutes what was building 21 years and ended in 20 seconds? What are you waiting for when all I can tell you is his name? And when I tell you, what will you know that you didn't know already except perhaps his name? Mm-hmm. Which is like, really, ugh, I'm getting, hmm. Like it was really powerful to read Ellison give voice to this. Because his his writing style is just very impressive, um, but it was also right. very painful to hear it sound so similar. And and I'm not even someone in the populations that are directly affected by this type of violence. So it's like yeah, yeah, and it's like it's 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 a little it's frustrating that we're still using mm-hmm. a lot of the same language, like a lot of the a lot of the Black Lives Matter movement. Like when you are when you're seeing tweets about it or whatever, it's just like, here are all these names. Like, remember all these names. Like these are, yeah, Mm -hmm. these are, these are the people who, like, this is why we need to keep fighting this. Or this is why, I don't know. This, yeah. So it's a way to try and like give meaning to deaths that I don't want to say they're meaningless, but they definitely like shouldn't have happened like that. Like there's no reason for them to happen like that. Yeah, to get I would say to give meaning to something that's that is senseless in its in yeah, how it transpires, right? Mm-hmm. Um so this of course leads to the party trying to crack down on our dude again for like emotionally whipping up a community, which of course like, well, the violence did that, but um and so again, they kind of banish him out of their circle. And while he's gone, riots break out in Harlem. And Ross has become Ross the Destroyer. And everything's falling apart. Um, somehow our dude gets back in there after he's decided that he's going to undo the Brotherhood from the inside. Um, and he almost gets killed by Ross and like has to escape into what is his what is his end goal in taking the brotherhood apart from the inside is it it is it is that they have well it i mean his end goal is to take them apart his the way he wants to do it is he starts lying about membership inside of harlem and let like trying to convince them that things are going well even though he's just he's just trying to do that to stop the violence or this is before the violence breaks out excuse me okay okay um and while while he's off trying to like plan for that, the riots break out in the wake of this death, and and also Ross like whipping up his people. Mm-hmm. Um, so he ends up back in Harlem as as this is all transpiring. He almost dies at the hands of Ross and his men, and escapes into the hole into like underground, and ends up in the hole where we find him at the beginning of the book. So, 
uh, and some of his musings at the end, he's not like, again, the closest thing to any sort of like explicit anger that he has is at the the brotherhood and the party and, and how they've failed um, black citizens of Harlem and New York. Um, but he also like sees how they played Ross and how the rest of society played Ross against them and, and that kind of thing. Uh, and so he says some things that I think are also very relevant today. Whence all this passion toward conformity anyway? Diversity is the word. America is woven of many strands. I would recognize them and let it so remain. Um, and he's just kind of, I guess, the goal of the book. If, if you take it as a story of a man writing a book, which it, you know, it's not just the character in first person is doing such. Um, is trying to give names to all these invisible people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, kind of what we were, even what we were just saying before, of you know, say their names. Um, well, I mean, what's he? I guess what's he saying at the end? Just like there's, there's, there's no point in trying to force all these, all these people to, to live together. So you might as well just let them all have their own little fiefdoms, or what is? I don't know that he's arguing for individual fiefdoms. Um, but he is he is arguing against the brotherhood's philosophy that like we should all be just working together for our one shared goal mm-hmm. of economic prosperity and do it with a completely blind eye to what is actually different about us or mm-hmm. um this this i say blind eye so that that ties into the symbolism of the book um, of which there's a lot, uh, one of which is one of the Brotherhood characters that ha- ends up having a glass eye, and that is it pops out, which is super gross. Um, and there, that is one of the main characters' like realizations of like, oh, these people who I thought were with me never saw me. They never actually like. It's a little heavy-handed if you think about it now. In the <laughs> moment, it's pretty well done. Mm-hmm. Um, but also it it's in fitting with a book where like there's a guy in New York like pulling a cart around with a bunch of rolled up blueprints and it's just a bunch of unused plans and like the rest of the book is really concerned with like whether or not you should approach this world with a plan or, or can you make one that will work and like here's this guy who's just got a pile of them that aren't going anywhere. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's cool. It's also like when he's at the paint factory, he's making white paint that's like the best possible white paint for government buildings. And to make it properly sealed for weather, they drop like a little couple dots of black goop in it. And then you like mix all the black out of it and it's white again. So like he's he's not subtle, Mr. Ellison. No, not always. (laughs) um, But the book also there's one more symbol I want to talk about is that one of the other Brotherhood characters gives our dude a link from the chain that he wore on his leg uh, in a chain gang in the Jim Crow South. Mm-hmm. And he wore it for 19 years and then escaped, and he still has a limp even though everything is fine with his leg. So it's like kind of a learned behavior, his gait. And he gives uh, our dude the link at one point as a, like, you represent me in the struggle here. I'm going to give this to you. And one of the other leaders of the brotherhood comes in and is like why is that here that's all that symbol does nothing but remind us of our divisions like put that away 
and kind of refuses to see it as a source of strength or motivation, but as a like, how dare you bring up that your people are, you know, have suffered this way and my people have not. We should be only concerned with the way in which we are suffering together. Um, so yeah, I, I the the symbolism of like the eyes and the seeing and the plans and whatnot, like it feels heavy handed, but it also allows for moments like that chain link thing, um, which kind of are succinct uh, versions of some of the larger themes in the book. So. Sure, sure. Um, I don't know. I think that's that's most of what I got. Okay. Any, any thoughts? Any questions? I don't Based- have any. Yeah, I don't have any big ones. Just like, is there anything else? Reading this in the mo- in like today's in in Donald Trump's America, mm-hmm. I guess for lack of a better word, is there anything that resonates that maybe wouldn't have if you had read it? I don't know, like six months ago, five years ago, anything like that. Personally, it resonates with me uh about like political action and who whose voices we should be listening to and and who's in charge of what voices we're listening to Mm -hmm. um the whole idea that the brotherhood was willing to like let him get out there and speak but they had a lot of misgivings about what his speech was actually going to create or um they still wanted to have control over the organizing that would follow from his speeches. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not a direct corollary, but you saw similar and you still see a lot of dialogue happening around like say the woman's March or some of the other protests that are coming out in the last couple weeks where folks are trying to figure out whose voices we should be listening to. Yeah. Right. Like it, it always pretty quickly with a big movement. And I think this happened like with Occupy and they were bad at it. And now mm-hmm. like, we're seeing mm-hmm. it sort of play out again with the women's March and, and we don't know how it's going to end up. But um, yeah, like the big questions are always like, what are we, what are we saying and who is saying it and who is, who is like helping us define that platform? Yeah. And I was really interested to, to see the really like visceral struggles of a movement that is trying to be about a lot of people. And then what happens when like individuals step forward and the movement isn't ready for it or, mm-hmm. or like I said, the, the tension between a communist belief system and allowing for an individual's control over, which is always undone like governments run <laughs> that are ostensibly communist systems. Right. Where like, mm-hmm. A strong person just emerges. You do have to have someone leading it. Yeah. Or, other, or else, at least that's how it ends up all the time. Uh, like, yeah. all 100% of the time. <laughs> uh, and then there's there's one other bit to that where one of the other things that starts to really bug our dude is that the party is starting to get concerned with more, like, national and international issues. Sure. And gets away from the grassroots block by block neighborhood work that got it there in the first place Mm -hmm. which is a lot of what you and i have kind of talked about in terms of how some of the you know american political parties have their strengths and weaknesses right now yeah it's like are are they accomplishing their goals on local levels versus fighting for them at the federal level and and what happens when there's like a donut hole in between (laughs) that you have to fill in so Mm -hmm. 
And there's also, can I give you a, a struck me funny, Andrew? You can give me one struck me funny, and then we have to be done. Great. Okay. Um, when he is off lecturing on the woman question, which is a thing they have him do once or twice. The woman question. Which is about, I guess, like bringing women into the fold. I'm not quite sure where this falls with uh, women's right to vote. It should be I was going to say, can, can we go shopping? <laughs> Stop it. Ew. <laughs> um, <laughs> He's back. The skeezy character. <laughs> Uh, at one point, our guy remarks while he is uh, about to sleep with a woman who came to his first woman question lecture. Um, why? Why did they insist upon confusing the class struggle with the ass struggle, debasing both us and them, all human motives? Struggle why, is real, Andrew? you know. <laughs> I'm trying to. I'm trying to focus on the ass struggle. Why are you? Why are you trying to make me worry about the class struggle? Mm-hmm. So that's that's Invisible Man. That's pretty right good. There. That's a good. That's good. a good one. <laughs> so if you have read this book uh, or you haven't and you want to talk to us about it anyway, that's a thing you could do. Mm-hmm. Um, you should hit us up on social media, facebook.com slash overdue pod or twitter.com slash overdue pod. I want to thank Emily, Grace, Melissa, Chris, Becky, Hannah, Blair, Yubiswainer, Rob, Gabrielle, Sophia, Starfish Chick, Sam, Renee, Unearthenum, Matt, Ralph, that's one person, Molly, Charlotte, Mr. J, Carrie, Baby Knees, CEO, Tim, Rachel, Camille, <laughs> Lucas, RTE2, Sarah, Amy, Celeste, Karen, Matt, Dina, Ray, Paul, and Michael, all for reaching out to us. Uh, on those social channels you can also write us an email at overduepod at gmail.com we read and respond as we are able andrew where should they go if they want to know more about the show if they want to know more they can go to overduepodcast.com up there we have links to itunes google play stitcher rss all those feeds you can use to subscribe to the show if you do subscribe in itunes rate and review us we've gotten what two or three new reviews in the last week or two which have been which have been great to read um and if you rate and review us on itunes one makes us feel good like that's good right yeah you want to make us feel good come on please come on can't score those touchdowns if i don't feel good yeah exactly and it also helps us rise in the rankings and uh beat out the other beat out the other podcasts which of course we want to do um we have links to spreaker our podcast host headgum our podcast network thank you to both of them um, we have a link to our Patreon project. Uh, was this a Patreon recommendation from someone? Do you have the name to hand? Let me see if it is. While you're doing that, do you want to talk about our live show? Yeah, I do. Um, go to bit.ly slash library show. All lowercase, all one word. You can find out more there about our live show that's happening on Saturday, February 11th at the uh, Free Library of Philadelphia. Um, we're going to be going on with Appointment Television, my other podcast, at uh, 6 p.m. Uh, and our show is going to go on at 7 p.m. And uh, afterward, we're going to go hang out at The Kite and Key. And we're going to drink and we're going to chill and it's going to be a great time. Um, we're going to talk about Treasure Island. And that's going to be pretty good. Uh, tickets are 15 bucks and plus a dollar or two of processing fees. Uh, yeah, we're, we're they're looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a good time. Again, that's a bit.ly slash library show. Uh, we have links for directions and for tickets and for all the all the stuff you will need. So, uh, Craig, do you have that name? No, I don't think there is one. I think we, okay. this is just a book I read. But... Okay. <laughs> cool. Uh, what am I doing next week? I am reading, I'm going to say Zami, a new spelling of my name by... Audra Lord. Audra Lord. Sure. 
We're going to find out all kinds of stuff about how to pronounce that next week. (laughs) Uh, We'll be back on next Monday. And until then, everyone, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast. Taking a break. I was able to keep one of those in the edit last week. Oh, I did not hear. You were giving me ba-doop-ba-doop-doops. I guess I shouldn't do anything into the mic that I'm not comfortable (laughs) having on the show. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha. Ba da ba ba. Is that the football song? Bum 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 bum. Ba 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 ba. Ba 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 ba